Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I was filthy. We were filthy in our own sin. Making an infinite transgression and bringing infinite offense against an infinite God. And so, Lord, because of your great mercy and because of your great grace, because of your great love, Lord, you met our infinite offense with your infinite sacrifice and your infinite grace. And this morning, all of us who are filthy, all of us who are wretched, have been made clean, have been washed as white as snow, have been pat our feet, set up on the rock. And this morning, God, we have hope. This morning, we have joy. This morning, we are anxious to hear from you. We are anxious for you to change us. We are anxious to give more of our lives to you. We are anxious to devote more of our hearts to you, God. This morning, we are anxious. Move among us as you see fit. Leave no hearts left hardened this morning. Speak through your word. Speak through the preaching of it. We worship you now through preaching. We worship you now through receiving his word preached. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We live in a world of many gods. There is the murderous God of Islam that says that if they will not convert, you should strike them dead. You should exercise his wrath for him and kill. There are those who follow teachers like Confucius and Buddha who live their lives attempting to, to capture some type of virtue, attempting to live according to some type of arbitrary standard in which they measure up, in which their good outweighs their bad, and in which they can never be certain of. There are many who devote their lives to the God of money, who live their life to make more and to spend more and to buy more and to have more. There are those who worship relationships, throwing themselves at men, living, hoping that they can get their self-worth from some guy or some relationship or some woman. There are those who worship leisure and those who worship prominence. And so it's a strange reality that in a world with so many gods, there is so much hopelessness. That with so many gods around us, that just as pervasive as the gods are, so is the hopelessness. And it's because that most of these gods, when the storms of life hit against your house, when the difficult circumstances come, when the ir inconceivable and irreconcilable happens to you, they all remain silent. They all, as Solomon says, are as though one chasing after the wind. It's like you, you call out and you catch air. And so this morning I ask us, what kind of God is our God? What kind of God is our God? Is our God reliable? Is our God trustworthy? Is our God worth us calling out to? This morning as we are continuing our series through Esther, in Esther chapter 3, if you want to go ahead and be turning there. 
This is in fact the question that we're going to be confronted with. The question that we ourselves are going to have to answer. And the, the question that the Jews of that day had to answer. As we've been going through Esther so far, we've been introduced to quite a lineup of characters, haven't we? And as Aaron has so uh, perfectly said last week, among all the characters, there's not a role model among them. We've got King Ahasuerus, or, or King Xerxes, it's one and the same. Your Bible may even have one or the other of those names. He is depravity personified. He has deposed Queen Vashti because she would not come and, and uh, be paraded as though a piece of meat in front of all of his cronies. And to replace her, what does he do? Bachelor, Persia edition. The most corrupt and perverse edition you could ever imagine. He brings in all of the beautiful virgins of Persia into his harem. So that one of them can please him in a way that proves she is worthy to be the king. Or she's queen. Queen Esther is the one that rises to the top. A, a Jew, though undercover as one. She has been instructed by her guardian cousin Mordecai to live and to go and to do and to be as though she is in fact not a follower of God at all. So you have Esther who, who is the, the Jewish woman who we are, we're hoping would be a role model who comes in and in fact is not. Mordecai, who we want to be a man of courage, we want to be a man of virtue, who has instructed this teenage girl to woo the king in all of his perversity and perversion. And so this morning we see yet another character introduced to the story. If you would stand with me as we read God's word together. We're just going to read the first six verses of chapter 3. God's word says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamaditha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were with him, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. One of the things that sometimes as we read biblical narrative that we lose track of is how much time passes. And there's been a number of years that have already passed since Esther 1 until Esther 3. And so in fact, between Esther 2 and Esther 3, we know that about five years have passed. As now we are in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus' reign. And immediately we are introduced to a man named Haman, an Agagite, who has been promoted by the king to become the second most powerful man in Persia. Perhaps you could even say the second most powerful man in all of the world. Now, when we read the Old Testament and when we read Old Testament narrative, one of the things that we must do is read it as though a Jew would read it. The same way that a Jew would read it. 
And if a Jew is reading Esther chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and they read that Haman has been promoted to the second most powerful man in all of Persia, immediately they are incensed. Immediately they see injustice that has happened, injustice that has taken place. You see, we've talked about what a wicked king Ahasuerus was, and in fact what all of the, how wicked and pagan all of Persia is, but they did have their strong suits. And one of the things that you could say about the kings of Persia is that they would not let a good deed go unrewarded. In fact, if, if someone were to do something good and they were to show their allegiance to the king and they were to show their loyalty to the king, the king would reward them richly so that everybody, everybody might see that you prosper when you follow after the king. Now remember what happened at the end of chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, Mordecai actually spoiled the plan of two of the king's eunuchs to assassinate the king. And the king acknowledges, knows that it's Mordecai, even writes it in his book. And so the, the perceptive Jew, the knowledgeable Jew would have expected that the exact same thing is going to happen to Mordecai that happened to Joseph way back in Genesis 41. You remember what happened to Joseph? Joseph's in prison, he interprets the dream for Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, seeing Joseph's wisdom, seeing the favor of God upon him, promotes him and makes him the second most powerful man in all of Egypt and in fact the whole world. And so the Jew would have expected the exact same outcome to have come of Mordecai, except what do we get when we turn the page? Mordecai is not promoted, Haman is promoted. I wonder how many of you feel like Mordecai this morning. I wonder how many of you this morning feel like Mordecai. You've spent years building up your resume. You've spent years building up a foundation for your life. You've spent years building a name for yourself. You've tried to do things to the best of your ability the right way. You've tried to honor God. You've tried to live with integrity. You've tried to be truthful. You haven't taken shortcuts. You've done what you were supposed to do when you were supposed to do it always. And yet it seems like everybody else around you prospers while you struggle. It seems like you miss out on every promotion while the guy that just got there did. The guy that takes all the shortcuts gets it. You look around and you just wonder. Is doing what's right even worth it? Is putting in all the hard work, is it even worth it? And the question you're really asking is, what kind of God is my God? What kind of God is my God? What kind of God allows evil to prosper while his own adopted children are floundering? How many of you feel like Mordecai this morning? And you're calling out to God and he seems silent. You're praying to God and he seems absent. You're looking for God and you can't find him anywhere. And you're certain that you're doing everything that you know you can do to delight yourself in him. And it's just not working. This morning I ask you, what kind of God is your God? What kind of God is he? Now when we read Hebrew scripture... It's always important how the person is introduced to us. The title they are given at introduction, the, the way they are, are framed up as they are told to us, always says something uh, important. It is the author giving us a clue as to something that we need to know, something that we need to understand so that we can have all the pieces that we need to understand the story. 
Now, do you remember how Mordecai was introduced to us? Mordecai was introduced to us as being from the tribe of Benjamin. Being from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, for all of you who consider yourselves to be Bible scholars, who else is from the tribe of Benjamin? What other famous Hebrew is from the tribe of Benjamin? King Saul, right? The, the first king of Israel, the king that, that God had called out, the king that God had anointed, the king that God had wanted, the, that the people had asked for. Hold on to that just for a second. Now, when I introduce Haman, who is he introduced as? He's introduced as the Agagite, right? Do you remember who Agag is? If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15 and you read... You know that the sworn enemy of the Jews, the sworn and first enemy perhaps of the Jews are the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the first nation that, were, that would attack the Jews as they began the exodus out of Egypt. And God vowed that he would destroy the Amalekites for having come against his people. And when you come against his people, you always come against God himself. And so God had vowed that he would strike down the Amalekites. And in 1 Samuel 15, God endeavored to do it through Saul and through his great army that had been built. And so God tells Saul and gives Saul very strict commandments that these are the Amalekites. These are the people that have been a thorn in the side of Israel. These are the people that believe they can transgress the God of Israel and pay no consequences. So Saul, what I want you to do is I want you to go and I want you to completely destroy them. I want you to wipe them from the earth. I want you to kill every one of them, man and woman alike. I want you to take all of their livestock and slaughter it, all of their goods, and destroy them. Don't keep anything from yourself. I don't even want a remnant from the Amalekites left. Wipe them from the earth. And what does Saul do? Saul goes and as the Lord had said, he gives the Amalekites to them. They utterly and oh, utterly overwhelm them and destroy them, overpowering them. But Saul decides to spare the king of the Amalekites. And who is the king of the Amalekites? King Agag. And the best of what the Amalekites had and the best of their livestock and the best of their, their gold and the best of all of their wealth Saul kept it. And when he is confronted by Samuel, the prophet, what does he say? He says, oh, I was going to give this to God. I thought I'd just keep all this stuff, not for myself, really just to show God how great he is and how glorious he is. Samuel calls and he says, bring the king out here. Bring the king out here. Preachers in the old day were just tougher than preachers now, by the way. You know what I'm saying? They didn't have their shirt tucked in, all right? They didn't have their little white-collar job thing, right? Samuel says, bring the king out here. Give me your sword. And, Saul, and Samuel goes like all Jackie Chan on Agag. It doesn't say that he cuts his head off. It says he cut him into pieces. Into pieces. This is the preacher. And it's at that point that God removes his hand from Saul. The man from the tribe of Benjamin. What do we have here? We have Mordecai from the lineage of Saul. We have Haman from the lineage of Agag. The Agagites should not even have existed. They should have already been wiped from the earth. They should have died. If Saul would have done what God had commanded, the Agagites would have never existed. Haman would have never come to be. 
And so immediately we know there is conflict here. Immediately we know there is tension here. Immediately we know that we are set up for a battle. And we need to understand that the way scripture is framing all of this up is this is not a bitter Jew versus a pagan Agagite. This is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. This is the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. This is the Antichrist versus Christ himself. And what do we need to take away from that? You see, we always tend to buy into the lie that our sin only affects ourselves. We buy into the lie that I can live however I want to live. I can do whatever I want to do. I can be as pagan as I want to be, and it only is my problem. It only affects me. But in fact, the Jews in Esther chapter 3, they are where they are because they are now reaping the unfaithfulness of the generations before them. Why are they in Persia? They are in Persia because the generations before them have been unfaithful to the covenant of the Lord. And as he said, he scattered them among the nations, allowing them to be put into exile by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and then under the rule of Persia. Why is Haman there? Haman is there because Saul sinned and was not faithful to the Lord and did things the way that he wanted to do them. And so there's an Agagite right here presenting himself as an enemy to the Jews. Do you understand this morning, brothers and sisters, that you are sowing right now in your life what the next generation will reap? Do you understand? You think your sin is just about you. You think your sin is just going to bring consequences on on yourself. Life is just not that disconnected. I've counseled with enough teenagers to know that what dad does son experiences. I've counseled with enough teenage girls to know that every teenage girl that throws herself, every boy that walks by has a dad at home that's not there. See, we live in a society that is trying to unravel the family and unravel the importance of the family. But the truth of the matter is, is we cannot undo what God has built. No, your children will reap what you have sown. As a church, the generation that follows after our generation will reap what we have sown. Don't be so deceived. The pornography that you look at is not just your problem. You're projecting onto your wife fantasies. Projecting onto your wife an imaginary world and holding her up to that expectation. You are defiling your mind all the while hoping that your sons and your daughters will be of great virtue. You live materialistically. You buy whatever you want. You make sure you have the right logo on your shirt, the right car in your driveway, the right house to go home to. And every single day and every single week you are sowing discontentment into the hearts of your children. Sowing materialism into their hearts, making them believe that that matters. And so the first thing they'll do when they get out from under your roof is get a credit card. And run it up as high as they can run it up. And they'll spend the rest of their marriage trying to pay it off. Your sin's not just about you, brothers and sisters. We can go on and on and on and on. But Saul... Didn't kill Haman, and here it is. 
David commits uh, adultery with Bathsheba, has one son die as a result, and another son, Solomon, who becomes king, and is utterly destroyed by what? His insatiable desire for women. Do you really think you would be so arrogant as to say that you'll be the exception? Would you be so arrogant as to say that the things that I'm sowing in my life will not bring judgment on the next generation? And so as we read, as we continue reading, it says that Haman, as he is given this promotion, is, is then backed by King Xerxes with a, with a great decree that goes out, a decree that would have brought great pleasure into Haman's life. Xerxes demanded that everyone that comes into the presence of Haman treat him as though he were the king himself by bowing down to him and paying homage to him. And everyone does what the king asks them to do. Everyone bows down to Haman everywhere that he goes except for one person, Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow down. Now, there is an interesting tension here in Esther chapter 3. There, and, and there are scholars on both sides of this. Even among our church staff, we've been going back and forth. So there are men that I love, and, and, and we are, are, there are two sides of this thing. And so let me tell you what one side of the perspective is on why Mordecai doesn't bow down. There are, there are certain folks that believe, there are a lot of folks that believe, that Mordecai is not bowing down to Haman is sin, in fact, that, that it is sinful because he is not doing what the scriptures clearly teach us to do, which is that we are to, to honor our politicians and honor our government and honor our king so far as it does not encroach upon our ability to honor our God. And so they would see this as ethnic pride more than allegiance to Yahweh. And I would humbly disagree with that. Again, I would say that Mordecai has not been a role model up until this point. Who tells their, their teenage cousin to go and to, to live as a pagan godless woman trying to impress a pagan godless king? There is nothing virtuous, nothing godly about it. But I think what we see in chapter 3 is Mordecai turning the page. I think what we see in chapter 3 is Mordecai. After all, five years has passed. And brothers and sisters, aren't you glad you're not the same person you were five years ago? And we change. And Mordecai is a real man and a real person. And he's evolving and he's maturing and he's growing. And, and who knows, perhaps he is dealing with conviction and guilt over what has happened with Esther. Regretting the actions that they have taken. And so when the Agagite comes and he, he is demanding him to bow down to him, this, this man that is an enemy of the Jews, this man that is, should not even be, but it is because of the unfaithfulness of his own ancestors that he's there, it's more than he can bear. And so what we see here is Mordecai drawing a line in the sand saying, I just can't do it. And understand every Jew reading this, when they hear of the decree, are screaming at Mordecai, don't bow down. You better not bow down. You can't bow down. No, I believe Mordecai sees this as an a issue of faith. And I say that because of what it says in verse 4. It says in verse 4 that when he was asked about it, he had told them, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So I see this as Mordecai saying, I can't uh, give my heart fully in allegiance to God and to Haman. I can't bow down to Haman and still feel as though I am living under the lordship of the heavenly father. Living, bowed down to Yahweh. 
So what we see here is finally drawing a line in the sand. Finally doing what he has been supposed to do all along. Finally being what he is supposed to have been. But before we give him too much credit, before we go all in with Mordecai, I think we need to understand what's happening in the background. Do you remember what the book of Esther is all about? The book of Esther is a book about providence. When we talk about providence, what we're talking about is that our God is so great and our God is so sovereign and our God is so reigning from the throne of heaven and orchestrating the events of life under his own creation that God most often is working in the background. God is working in places that you can't see him, in ways that you can't know, bringing to be what he intends to happen for his creation, for his purposes, and for his glory. And so what I believe what we see here is God working in the background to maneuver Mordecai, to position Mordecai, to get Mordecai where Mordecai should be. Let me ask you, do you think it's an accident that it was in a Gagite that got his promotion? Do you think that's an accident? You think it's an accident that, that Mordecai just happened to be from the tribe of Benjamin and he just happened to be from the tribe of Agag? You think that's an accident? Or could it be that God knew what it would take to finally get Mordecai's attention? Could it be that God finally knew what it would take that Mordecai would finally draw a line in the sand and man up and be the man that God had called him to be? Could it not be? You see, God knows Mordecai better than Mordecai knows himself. God knows the combination to Mordecai's lock. And so, like a great maestro with a, great, a grand symphony, bringing it to a great crescendo, God brings together all of the circumstances of Mordecai's life to align in this very moment so that Mordecai will finally do what God intends for him to do. God will always accomplish his will through his people for his glory. And we see that here in the life of Mordecai. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that God will bring to bear in your life what must happen for you to be who God intends for you to be? God loves you enough to allow the circumstances of your life and the trials of your life and the tragedies of your life and the difficulties of your life and the depth of your life to be decided, to, to bring them into your life in such a way that will finally allow, cause you to draw a line in the sand and step up and be the man or the woman that God has created you to be. The question becomes, what will it take for you? What will it take for God to get your undivided attention? What will, what will it take for God to finally have a captive audience in you? What will it take for you to finally have a soft heart that doesn't come week after week after week and listen and listen and listen, only to have the words of his, of, of his word bounce off from your heart as though bouncing off of a stone? What will it take? Will this sermon be enough? Will hearing me say it be enough? Will, will the Spirit moving in your heart, will that be enough? Will reading His Word be enough? Do you read it at all so that He can speak to you through it, so that He can soften your heart with it? Will it require tragedy? Though God does not bring evil into your life, it is clear that He is in control and He permit, permits or denies and God loves you so much that he'll let you hit rock bottom so that finally you'll look up. 
what will it take? Will it take a rebellious child? Will it take a failing marriage? Will it take ill health? Will it take you losing your job? What will it take so that God will finally have your heart softened? So that you finally will devote your attention to Him? What will it take this morning? Because God loves you enough. And God knows the combination to your lot. And like a great maestro organizing a symphony, He is bringing to bear His will. And it will not be thwarted. And it will not be stopped. What will it take for you to draw the line in the sand? When we read Esther chapter 3, it appears as though it backfires, though, doesn't it? Certainly, Mordecai does take a stand. Mordecai refuses to bow. Mordecai does, not, does draw the line in the sand. Mordecai does not uh, acquiesce to what's happening around him. This is what we've been wanting from Mordecai the whole time. But then in verse, then in verse 6, it seems as though it's backfired. It says, Haman is incensed. Haman is enraged. How could this Jew, how could this petty nobody Mordecai not bow down to me? And so Haman decides that it must not, this may not just be a Mordecai issue. This may be a Jew issue. That the same things that have caused Mordecai to not bow down, perhaps they would be the same things that would not allow other people to bow down. And so Haman endeavors to then wipe the Jews from the earth. And we read this, and perhaps the first thought we have is, man, that's, that's just hyperbole. That's too exaggerated. Nobody would ever try to kill a whole people group because of something like this. And I would just ask you to remember Nazi Germany. Just remember Nazi Germany. Just remember how pagan this, this, uh, this kingdom was. Remember what depravity is there. Are, do you really think there are evils they aren't capable of? And so it, it, it appears as though that it backfires. And do you understand what all is at stake here? Do you understand what all is at stake? That we have a man, the rest of chapter 3 tells us that King Xerxes empowers him to do it. That King Xerxes gives him his signet ring and says, whatever decree you want to issue, whatever you want to say, however you want to go about it, you have the power to do it. Haman offers to buy it from him by, by saying, I'll, I'll give you tons of silver, 270 tons of silver. If you'll do, and, and you know what the king says? I'll just keep it. Use it for your battle. So he issues a decree that on the 13th day of the 12th month, every single Jew will be annihilated. So we have a man that has the power, a man with the prominence, a man with the resources, a man with the hatred. terrifying and at stake here is everything you understand that at stake here is whether or not God is a covenant keeping promise keeping prophecy fulfilling God God had promised to Abraham that through his offspring would be a great nation that would endure forever and be a blessing to the nations God had promised David that on his throne would sit one of his people forever reigning over his kingdom. God had promised through the prophets that there would be a, a spotless lamb that would come, that would die for our sins and die for our transgressions, that would be bruised for us so that we might be right with God. And in view is all of it. If God can't protect his people, if God can't keep his covenants, if God can't fulfill his prophecies, 
he's too weak to be God at all. If the God of Israel is silent, the God of Israel is not at all. And so we are confronted this morning with what kind of God is this? What kind of God do they have? We are confronted this morning with the question that every people of faith and skeptic alike must answer and reconcile in their own hearts. Did God make men or did men make God? Did God make men and if he did we should live in complete allegiance to him, being right with him, enjoying what he has made for us to do. But if God is just a figment of our imaginations... If he's just something that we've created because we couldn't handle the weaknesses of life and the struggles of life, we were just too weak and futile, then it's all irrelevant. It's all hopeless. It's all pointless. The only hope that the Jews have in Esther chapter 3 is the assurance of the sovereignty of God. The only hope that the Jews have in Esther chapter 3 is that God really is who he says he is. That God really will protect his people and guard his people and defend his people and sustain his people. The only hope that they have is that their God is real and that their God will come through. And this is the only hope anybody has when it appears as though evil has won. There are some of you, you fear that in your life evil has won. You look in the mirror, and you don't see a man that you're proud of. You see a man that you're shamed by, and you fear that evil has won. You look at your marriage, and it's collapsing and falling apart, and you fear that evil has won. You look at your children who are rebelling and, and running from the Lord and running from your family, and you fear evil has won. I even think about what happened in our community this past week with Keaton's passing. We see this beautiful 16-year-old girl step out of this life and into the next, and it just jolts us. And we're left despairing, and we're left fearing, and we're left with our, with, filled with confusion, and not really knowing where to turn or where to go. And if we were just to boil all of that down, what we would boil it all down to is we're afraid that evil has won. Think about Samantha and Christian the last time. I was studying Esther chapter 3, I was a student pastor, and the very night that I, we were studying this, they found out that their dad had died in a car wreck. He was in the 7th grade and she was a senior, fixing to graduate. And you wonder, has evil won? And the only hope the people of God have when it appears as though evil has won is that our God is sovereign and our God is in control and our God is reigning and he will not allow the gates of hell to prevail against us. And brothers and sisters, what I want you to understand this morning is that the hope that we have is more privileged than the hope they had in Esther chapter 3. The hope that we have doesn't just look back to the Exodus as the Jews would. Instead, we can look back to the cross. Where we saw it and it appeared as though evil had won. It appeared as though evil had triumphed. 
And so God took the wicked intentions of the Pharisees. He took the brutality of, Roman, of the Roman government and the cowardice of Pilate. And he took and he laid his son on the cross and allowed them to nail him there. But instead of, of evil winning, the cross triumphed over history showing that sovereign God will allow the definite plan of his salvation unfold for his, for his people. And we see that God in his sovereignty will never fail us. We see God in his sovereignty will never check up, will never back down. And even when we can't see him, and even when we can't hear him, and even when we don't know he's there, God is orchestrating the events of history and orchestrating the events of providence like a grand maestro in a great orchestra bringing all of his creation to a crescendo. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, I call on you to hope in the sovereignty of God. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what's got your stomach in knots and your heart's breaking. But I ask you, whatever it is, as his people, the people against whom the gates of hell cannot prevail, hope in the sovereignty of God. Rest in the sovereignty of God. Rejoice in the sovereignty of God. Rest in him. He will not forsake you. This morning, what do you need to entrust into the sovereign hands of God? This morning, what do you need to bring to him? What do you need to let go of? What do you need to get rid of? This morning, it may feel like evil has won, but your hope is in the assurance of the sovereignty of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.